everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today I'm speaking with David Philip Miller about his biography of the 18th century inventor and scientist James Watt, entitled The Life and Legend of James Watt. David, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you very much, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Well, I'm a by trade, I'm a historian of technology uh, and a historian of science, although I'm retired now, but I still keep working. Um, I, I originate from uh, Yorkshire, a little town in Yorkshire in the United Kingdom. Um, and um, I was educated at Manchester University as an undergraduate and uh, then at the University of Pennsylvania in uh, Philadelphia, where I did my graduate work. And I taught there for a little while and then at the University of Edinburgh. But in uh, way back in 1981, I came to Sydney on a three-year contract. And um, I've been here ever since. It's a hard place to leave. You're quite the world traveler. What was it that led you to write a biography of, of James Watt? Well, I've been interested in what, uh, since my undergraduate days, when I did a course in economic history um, at the University of Manchester. Um, and then, of course, I did my PhD in the history of science and technology. And he's, a, he's a, always a figure, always someone who crops up. Um, but my early work uh, was more to do with scientific societies and voyages of discovery and so on. But about 20 years ago now, maybe 25 I was working on a a Royal Society project, and um, it struck me that James Watt and his uh, colleagues, the people he worked with, uh, might provide a good example uh, for an argument I was running about the Royal Society. And so I started having a look at um, his life and um, gradually got captivated by it. And I've been off and on working, working on him ever since. Um, I've written a lot of papers. In fact, I've written a couple of other books in which he features. Uh, they're not biographies, but the aspects of his work feature very centrally um, in those books. Um, but about two, two or three years ago, it struck me that um, this year it was the 200th anniversary of his, of his death. Um, and I thought maybe I should put all my years of work on him together in a in a biography and um, it might be a biography in the year of his death that that might attract a little bit of notice it really so is, that's how i came to this book it, it really is fascinating to hear that that this project came together in is so quickly given the amount of you know resources that you had to draw upon for it i mean it, it's it, it's an incredibly thorough examination of Watt's life. And, and as you explained, it was a very uh, diversified life. He was not just active in invention and in science, but as, as one of the things that we'll, I'm sure we'll be getting to later on, he was also uh, a, very active in the business. And that's one of the uh, you know, misconceptions that you, that you seek to address, which was that he was just a scientist, just an inventor. He, he really seemed to have a very diverse uh, workload and a very diverse interest. And, and the, when I was reading the, going back over the end notes, I was just impressed by the amount of, of, of primary source material that you drew together for this. Yes. Well, when people ask me how long it took me to write the book, I do say, you know, two and a half years or 25. <laughs> and uh, and the, the, the 25 refers to the fact that, yes, I mean, you can't make even a, a small dint in the, the documentary base for a life of what, uh, in really any less time than that. Um, there's an enormous archive of Bolton and Watt papers um, in Birmingham, and um, there's lots of other material elsewhere. And, and as you say, he, he was such a multifaceted individual. We'll perhaps talk about this, but he was the kind of guy who couldn't keep his finger out of anything. You know, he was, he was your classical improving mentality. He couldn't address any topic without thinking about how it could be uh, dealt with better or, or improved. Um, and so he, he led a very varied, very varied existence, which is difficult to come to terms with. And uh, I, I would still say at this, even at this point, after all that time, um, 
that, that I could still be surprised by things in the in the Watt archive. I haven't by any means covered everything. Mm. One of the things that I found so fascinating when I was reading your book was how far Watt came given the humbleness of his origins. I was wondering if you could start us off by, by talking a bit about Watt's uh, early life, his family, and how it was that he you know, got into the, the business, if you will, of inventing and, and, and getting interested in science. Yes, well, Watt was a, a Scotsman. He was born in uh, a little town called Greenock, uh, which is just west of Glasgow. Uh, he was born in 1736 in in Greenock. And um, he was born, I suppose, to a family who were, were merchants, um, so that we would perhaps call them sort of lower middle class or a business family. Now, his father was a ship's chandler. He, he supplied um, provisions for ships. Um, he was also something of a carpenter um, and, a, and a more general merchant. He, his mother, who came from a family called the Muirheads, um, uh, represented some rather older family merchant interests, slightly wealthier. So his father married up slightly, I would say. Um, so what? what's ancestors were also quite interesting he had a he had a grandfather who described himself as a professor of mathematics uh, which really meant that he was a teacher of mathematics um, but he also did work for the for the um the local town the local council that kind of thing he had another he had an uncle who was a surveyor um produced an interesting map of the clyde river um, and his father, as I say, was a, a general merchant. So what came from a background of people who were um, technically um, quite proficient? And Greenock was a place that offered opportunity for, for people who had those kinds of um, qualities. It was a, a relatively newly established town when what was born, quite small, um, maybe about 6,000 population. Um, the population increased by 1,800 to about 20,000, something like that. So it was a small town, but it was um, rapidly rising. Um, it participated in the Atlantic trade. Because of problems of accessing the Upper Clyde, it was difficult for shipping to get right up to Glasgow. And so Greenock being further down the Clyde River uh, was more readily um accessible and so it participated in the Atlantic trade which increasingly involved importing tobacco um, from the American colonies um, and then exporting various goods in return um, a lot of sort of household goods and everyday necessities that were um, exported from Greenock in the Atlantic trade so the, the, the Watts were what were known at the time and are known by historians as uh, improvers. That is to say, they were very much on the side of um, those in the community who, who tried to um, develop economically, develop the town economically. Um, so his, his father and his grandfather were involved in, in building local um, facilities, local churches and local buildings, and served on the council, served in sort of semi-judicial positions and that kind of thing. So that's the, the sort of background that, that Watt came from. And, and in many ways, he, he, was, he was through his life very much like his, his ancestors as an improver. Um, there's that larger sense of improvement in which um, you're talking about economic development, but I also I already mentioned that Watt was also a guy who, you know, with with any small problem, he wanted to worry away at it and find a solution. So he was an improver in sort of every sense of the word. Now, was his interest mainly technical, or did he have any sort of uh, academic bent that he sought to satisfy? His interests were um, were technical from a very 
uh, young age. I mean, there are lots of stories which we have to take with a pinch of salt, I think. There are lots of stories about his, his youth. Um, he was an avid reader of technical material, um, chemical texts and, and the like. Um, and he, although he was schooled at home a lot of the time, he, he did go to a local grammar school, which provided quite a strong modern education, I suppose they would have described it as. Um, not so much classical education, but concentrating on um, modern uh, languages, on technical subjects, um, on uh, mathematics, on business, those kinds of those kinds of studies. Um, so he was versatile. He 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 also had interests, literary interests, as a youngster and and as a as a, a grown man later in his life. But yes, there was a very strong technical bias to his um, to his experience as a youngster. So what was it that led him to become an engineer and how did he uh, embark upon it? I mean, nowadays we think of it as being something that requires uh, higher education, post-secondary education, but the, the path that you describe is, is a little bit different. Yes, indeed. Um, <clears throat> what was in fact in most ways um, self-taught is what we call an autodidact. Um, and um, it was difficult for his family. His family were not um, extremely wealthy, which you would need to be in order um, to be able to spare the time to go to um, university. And even at university, what would not have been able to study engineering as such? It was not something that was um, in the curriculum in those days. So he took a rather informal route um, to becoming an engineer. Um, the first thing was he worked for his father. So he worked in his father's um, mercantile business. And I think in, in that process, he acquired a lot of business skills um, and practical skills as well, working with his hands. Um, it was clear that it was clear to his parents and to people in Glasgow who knew him well, that he was a very talented boy. And so they, they put some thought as to how they might um, educate him, what he ought to do with himself. And when he was um, when he was in his late teens, it was decided that he should be apprenticed as a mathematical instrument maker. Now, again, a proper apprenticeship to a mathematical instrument maker would have been an expensive, a very expensive proposition, even if there were people locally to be found who could do that. Um, and they weren't really, not in Glasgow at that point. So Watt travelled to London as a young man, and he had an informal um, short apprenticeship with a mathematical in instrument maker called John Morgan in London. And this is really where what sort of honed a lot of his very fine technical skills and also where he became aware, I think, of the, the possibilities of serving scientific circles or natural philosophical um, operators, as they were called in those days, um, by um, offering technical support, you know, with the instruments and so on that were necessary to much uh, scientific experimentation. So what went to London in uh, 1755 and um, stayed there, returned to Glasgow in the, the, year, the year afterwards. And as I say, he learned a great deal there, I think. He, he, he was perhaps fortunate in choosing John Morgan. Morgan was not one of the most prominent uh, instrument makers in London. Um, and in a way, it, it would have been unfortunate if Watt had, had served his uh, informal apprenticeship with someone more prominent, because the more prominent ones by that time were sort of dividing labor. They were becoming very large-scale businesses. And it, it's likely that if he'd gone with one of them, he would have spent his days in very repetitive activity, um, maybe uh, producing um, measures and so on very very in a very repetitive fashion but Morgan was a small-scale operator and as a result of that what was able to do a great many things 
uh, learn about a lot of different um, technical matters. And so um, he was really quite well prepared when he came back to Glasgow. Um, and he was making instruments to sell initially through his father's business. Uh, he was making quadrants, for example, an, an important navigational instrument um, of obvious value to you know, people who were sailing into Greenock and sailing out again. Um, and so that's how he started when he got back to Glasgow. But he, he gradually moved into, um, into his father's mercantile business and um, had the ambition, I think, at that point to set up himself and to make instruments and to sell them locally. Um, he, um, the, next, the next big opportunity for him really um, was also connected with his instrument making skills. Um, he, he knew some people connected with the University of Glasgow. In fact, one of his um, relatives on his mother's side, a chap called George Muirhead, was a professor at the University of Glasgow. I mentioned that the Muirheads were slightly more elevated socially than, than the Watts were. And um, through George Muirhead and one or two other contacts at the university, Watt was invited to do a job for the university. Um, a chap called McFarlane in the West Indies, who was a graduate, um, had decided he would, um, he would donate his astronomical instrument collection to the university to allow it to set up an, an observatory. So these McFarlane instruments were heading across to Glasgow from the West Indies and they needed someone, uh, when they arrived, they weren't in very good shape. So they needed someone to repair these instruments and get them in working order so that they could be installed in the observatory. And someone must have said, oh, well, there's this young, young chap, um, James Watt, who's been studying um, instruments and has a, a lot of skill in that direction so let's employ him and that's what happened he he became mathematical instrument repairer initially it was just a, a single job to start with but i think he did such a good job that they decided they'd hire him on a permanent basis in in an instrument maker role at the university the other thing he's doing during this period that I find fascinating is his civil engineering work. Because, again, that's something that we think of nowadays as very specialized, requiring a lot of advanced knowledge. And yet, as you explain, he becomes a civil engineer. He's involved in these very uh, high-profile engineering projects for the period. Yes. Well, the, the, the civil engineering really starts up when what um, concludes that his his career as a merchant is not really going to um, satisfy him um, or provide the standard that he he wants. By by the by, seventeen sixty four, he's married and children are starting to come along, and his work at the university, whilst he's very much enjoyed it and it, it gave him a lot of uh, stimulus scientifically and in various other ways, it wasn't really paying the bills. Nor were the the shops that he was trying to run in Glasgow. So. Yes, he, he, he turned then to these larger engineering projects that were important in the development of Scotland at this time in the 1760s, 70s and beyond. Um, and uh, prominent among these was the development of canals, canal system. So um, what became essentially a canal engineer um, surveying routes for canals. So the, the proprietors, the promoters of canals would decide that they wanted a, a canal from Glasgow to Edinburgh and then um, an engineer would be um, employed to survey the route and try and, and find the best way to the best route for the, for the canal. So he did spend um, a number of years um, from the late from the mid 1760s um, into the 1770s um, in that kind of work. It involved him in being away from home a great deal, um, riding across the countryside on, on horseback um, with his surveying instruments. Um, yeah, so what became an engineer in that sense? He, he also became I think that was his preferred activity actually as a canal engineer, but to really make money he found himself becoming also a construction engineer. That is to say, 
someone who actually uh, took charge of building the canal. And that was a very different proposition. You know, that involved um, dealing with large uh, groups of laborers um, and the whole business side of construction, as well as negotiating things constantly with the proprietors who, you know, wanted their the best value for their for their money. And um, whilst he did this, he did it particularly on a canal called the Monklands Canal, uh, running from the Mon- Monklands coal field outside Glasgow uh, towards the city centre. Um, whilst he found this kind of work um, quite lucrative, um, he also found it very difficult. Um, his, his temperament was not particularly suited um, to business dealings in the sense of bargaining, you know, uh, face-to-face, toe-to-toe uh, bargaining was something that what actually came to, to dread. Um, and so he was always on the lookout for engineering jobs that really involved him either being in the field or in what they called the closet, that is to say, in his, in his study. Um, that's where what felt most at home. I liked when you talked about this because you this part of his life because you are also tying it to these misconceptions that we have about him. And as you explained, this is where this misconception. A lot of people refer to this when they get this misconception that he was simply bad at business. And yet, as you point out, it has a, you know it has something to, a good amount to do with his health, which, as you describe, is never terribly robust and, and how, you know, and, and how we're in a sense, how these things tended to foster into these misunderstandings about Watt's uh, abilities and his uh, preferences. Yes, indeed. I mean, I may have given the impression in what I just said that Watt was not a good businessman. That's not true. He was very, he was very canny um, about money. He was very quick to see opportunities um to make money he was very quick to see technical solutions to problems that stood in the way of making money um and um yeah it was it was really just a temperamental matter that um the actual face-to-face bargaining was was something that he found difficult i think he found dealing with um rough and tumble um workmen also quite quite challenging yeah, there, but there are many there are many sort of mythologies about about what, and certainly one of them um, is that he was a poor businessman and that he needed, therefore, he good businessmen um, to work with. You know, we'll get to a couple of his talking about a couple of his partners in business, um, and very often, you know, they're seen as making up a deficiency that what has. Um, I don't think they're actually making up a deficiency in business acumen. Really what they're making up most is a deficiency of capital. That is to say he needed other people's money um, to pursue the ambitious projects that um, he ended up um, working on. So what you've outlined here is a rising talent in uh, in, uh, the in, in Scotland, he's uh, involved in some big projects. And yet at, it's around this time that he makes, it's soon after this time that he makes a move to Birmingham. And I was wondering if you could explain what it was that leads him to undertake this move and how does it, cha- and, and how does it change his life? Okay. We haven't really talked about uh, the elephant in the room yet, which is, of course, the steam engine. Um <laughs> And it's it's the steam engine and the improvement of the steam engine that um, leads Watt um, to Birmingham eventually. He gets interested in steam whilst he's still at the University of Glasgow. Um, a friend of his um, actually ends up making some suggestions about how to improve the existing type of steam engine. And Watt becomes interested in that. And he starts doing some chemical experiments, so some experiments on on heat. Um, again, there's a story that he he played with a, a model engine um, that one of the professors used in his classes to demonstrate, and it had broken down 
um, and what was given the task of repairing this. Um, whether it's true or not, that, that he certainly did a lot of experimental work on heat and the production of steam and how this might be done more efficiently. And he detected a few problems with uh, the, the so-called Newcomen engine, named after Thomas Newcomen, who, who developed the first viable steam engines in the early 18th century. So what develops this interest in the steam engine, it has to take really uh, the back seat, or you might say put on the back burner, um, <laughs> whilst he's, he's earning all this money doing his canal projects. Um, because steam at that point is something that really consumes money um, rather than makes him money. He's not going to um, keep the food on the table for his, for his kids. What does find uh, a partner, though, who was prepared to put some money into this, a chap called John uh, Roebuck, who is actually from Birmingham himself, but um, he's working in Scotland, pursuing various projects in Scotland, and he's associated with the Caron Ironworks um, in Scotland, which was uh, quite important in providing some of the infrastructure that uh, an in a developing industrial country needed. And Roebuck um, gets to know of what and thinks that there is some real promise in, in uh, Watt's um, work on the steam engine. In the meantime, Watt has had uh, a brilliant idea. Again, the story is that he had this idea when he was wandering on Glasgow Green one day. Uh, he, he was trying to figure out um, why it was that so much steam was wasted in Newcomen steam engines. And he concluded that one of the reasons for this was that uh, in order for the steam engine to operate, the cylinder where the steam was, it was injected um, had to be, ended up being cooled down because you had to inject cold water into the steam in order to create a vacuum uh, which then led the piston to drop in the engine. And uh, this was rather inefficient um, in, in heat terms. So Watts wandering uh, across uh, Glasgow Green, and uh, as he reported many years later, um, and suddenly he had the idea um, for what became known as the separate condenser. Watt um, decided that if you could condense the steam in a, in a chamber that was separate from the main cylinder, but still connected to it. If you could inject the cold water into this separate chamber, then it would, it would condense all the steam in that chamber and in the, the cylinder, but it wouldn't cool the cylinder down. So the engine would be able to operate at a higher temperature all the time, and Watt believed this would be much more efficient. So this is where Watt's at when he comes across John Robeson. John Robeson thinks this is this is a great idea. Um, he wants to put some money in um, and uh, invest in the scheme. He's the one actually who who puts up the money for what to take out a patent um, on the separate condenser and on a number of other technical improvements. This is a patent that Watt takes out in 1769. It's actually the 50th anniversary of the, the, the separate condenser pattern this year. Um, okay, so things are going okay with Robeson for a little while. Watt's doing his experiments, trying to build a steam engine, making some progress. Um, but then Robeson gets into financial trouble. Uh, there's a big bank failure, a big financial crisis in Scotland, in 1772 or thereabouts, um, and Robeson's caught up in that, as are many people. And um, so he's, he's basically going bankrupt. What sees the writing on the wall, he thinks, you know, the, getting the finance in Scotland to pursue my goals is not going to be easy. Um, he's also has a tragedy in his life. Um, while he's out um, on one of his canal projects, um, he gets a message that his wife, who was about to produce um, another child, 
uh, was severely ill. And so he makes his way back to Glasgow. But a friend meets him on the road and gives him the sad news that his wife has died in childbirth. So here is Watt, um, just lost his wife. Um, he has two young children who are dependent on him. Um, and he has a failing steam engine business um, in Scotland. This is what leads him to go to Birmingham. He knew people in Birmingham. He had um, met them on trips down to London. He'd gone down to London on canal business um, and stopped in at Birmingham. He was always curious to see sort of other industrial towns and their, their industries. And he went there and he visited the, the manufactory of a gentleman called Matthew Bolton, who was a hardware manufacturer in Birmingham. Birmingham itself was a town known for its um, metal trades, for working with metal and producing all sorts of metal goods. And Bolton was what, what was known at the time as a toy manufacturer, which didn't mean that he you know, produced model cars and that, that sort of thing for children. What it meant was he produced um, small metal items, belt buckles, um, and the like. But he had a very large manufacturing operation. And um, Bolton himself was interested in power, uh, empowering his own facilities. And um, so eventually when they met up, they, they saw um, a good deal of interest uh, in each other. And um, Bolton at that was actually already trying to persuade uh, Watt to come down to Birmingham before John Roebuck's um, business troubles really turned very bad. Um, and so, yeah, when the crisis came in 1774, Watt decided that he would go down to Birmingham. He, he rescued the parts of his engine from a workshop that he had on John Roebuck's estate, um, and he took them to Birmingham. He left his children behind uh, with some of his older female relatives, but he took his engine to Birmingham and tried to build um, his life there from, from that point on. Now, you explained how, you, you've explained how, you know, he, the, how, what his innovations are and how they improved the steam engine. And he, in Birmingham, he works on it some more. But you explained that it wasn't enough simply to physically improve the engine. And, and, and you, and, this is another part of the book that I, I found uh, very fascinating, which was how you explained how he was very cognizant of and the process that he went through to ensure that he and his partner would profit from the engine. I was wondering if you could perhaps explain a bit that process as well, because it really gets to uh, an aspect of this history that we don't often think about, which is this very, you know, sometimes uh, very uh, abstract and very technical, but also very fascinating process of, of, of how to make money, from, how they made money from these inventions. Yeah, well, indeed. I mean, this is the basic distinction, which is so important between invention and and innovation. I mean, inventions can be thought up in a, you know, in a closed room, <laughs> um, but they don't become an innovation. They don't make money. They don't become commercially viable. They don't have effects in the economy and the society um, unless somebody's prepared to invest in them. And they're not going to invest in them unless they're going to make money. Now, um, the basic thing, the basic route that what decided he would take in trying to make money from his steam inventions was by taking out a patent, uh, the patent on the separate condenser. And he took out other patents too. But the basic mechanism of the patent is that it gives the patentee a limited period, in this case, um, 14 years nominally, um, during which they have a, they will have an exclusive right to exploit the invention that is specified in the patent. In return for that exclusive right, then they they have to provide a specification of the invention. That is to say, they have to tell the world what the invention is and how it works, so that when the patent uh, runs its course and comes to an end, um, that idea that technology is available publicly. Now, when Watt went to Birmingham, unfortunately, he'd taken his patent out in 1769, 
and um, he went to Birmingham in 1774. He still hadn't got anywhere near a commercially viable engine at that point. And um, so before Bolton went into partnership with him, he really wanted to ensure that they could extend this patent. It was only 14 years. Um, five or six of those years had gone. Um, and so what they did, and Bolton was very adept at this, um, they decided they would lobby Parliament, which was one way that you could uh, get a, an act of Parliament, actually, to extend the patent. This was the first order of business, then, so far as Bolton and Watt were concerned. They had to get this patent extended. They were successful. Um, an act of Parliament was passed in 1775, which extended their patent to the year 1800, which was a very generous um, extension. It certainly gave them uh, lots of time to exploit their invention. So what does the work? He gets a viable um a viable engine, and then he he says, well, how are we going to actually make money out of this? I mean, one way would be to build engines and to sell them. Um, but Bolton, even Bolton with his manufacturing capabilities at that time, um, didn't really have the wherewithal to, to build complete steam engines. Um, so what decided that the best way to make money would be to design steam engines, to license the, the design to people who wanted to use these engines, um, and then to charge those people a sum of money for the savings in fuel that the engine made possible. Right? This was the great thing about James Watt's engine with the separate condenser when compared with earlier steam engines. It was much more fuel efficient. And there were certain situations, um, especially in places like Cornwall, um, where fuel was scarce, coal was scarce. It was very expensive because it had to be transported there. There were no local supplies. Um, so if you could provide an engine that was much, much more efficient and needed less um less coal, then that was very attractive. Um, and what decided that the, the way to, to make money themselves um, was to take a portion, a third was what they specified, that was to take a portion of the savings in fuel that the um, user of the steam engine um, managed to make. Go, go ahead. This was, yeah, sorry. I mean, this was very, this was very, astute um, because of course the um, from the point of view of the person using the steam engine they were they were getting they were getting quite a good deal they weren't having to pay um, a lot of money up front um, so far as they made money by the savings the experience with the steam engine then Bolton and Watt um, made money and so it looked like a very good way to um, to make money out of um, Watt's patent that's how they proceed. Who was who uh, using uh, these steam engines and how were they employing them? What, what, what did they need the power for? Okay. Um, steam engines, even before Watt's time, um, were in use um, to particularly to um, pump water out of mines. As coal mines and uh, metal mines um, went deeper and deeper, you know, trying to find, searching out seams um, deeper and deeper underground. The problem of flooding um, was um, was a very difficult one. Um, existing steam engines, uh, Newcomen engines, were certainly an improvement on earlier ways of pumping water out of mines, um, but they were they used a lot of fuel, and. Um, so Watt's initial market, the, the, the target market, if you like, for Bolton and Watt, um, were the copper and tin mines of Cornwall. Um, Cornwall, as I've, I've explained, was a place where um, it was very important to be fuel efficient. And so the, the Cornish were interested in, the Cornish mine owners were interested in 
Norton Watts engines um, for that reason. So in in 17 um, in the late 1770s, this was the, the the main market for their engines. I mean, they did. They, I think their first steam engine was produced. Um, their first pumping engine was actually produced for a colliery near Birmingham in in Dudley near Birmingham in 1776. Um, and they also produced a, an engine for an ironworks, John Wilkinson's ironworks, which was also nearby. That was a blowing engine to, to operate a pair of, um, a set of bellows. But these were sort of experimental engines. They, they, were, they worked locally to start with, um, cooperatively really with these users of their engines to, to perfect the machines. And then um, they, they moved on Cornwall. So you mentioned that they did well from this. Uh, exactly how well did Watt do as a result of this invention? Yeah, well, this, uh, this struck me as an interesting line to pursue, an interesting question to pursue, because um, Watt has often been portrayed as a kind of otherworldly inventor and, and natural philosopher. Um, but he was actually inordinately interested in, in uh, money. Um, what was was known for his headaches in in his youth? You know, he used to he used to suffer quite badly from headaches and probably from what we would call depression. Um, but there was a time when uh, his his wife, his second wife, actually was talking to one of Watt's old friends in in uh, Glasgow, and the old friend said ventured the opinion that um, James would um, get over his headaches when he got rich. <laughs> and um, that, in fact, does seem to have been the case. Um, what made a good deal of money um, out of his engines um, by the time he retired in 1800? It's quite difficult to figure out exactly how much. Um, in his will, he, he left a will that was um, worth more than £60,000, which is, you know, much more money than it sounds these days um, <laughs> back back then. Um, but I, so I tried to actually reconstruct um, the amount of money that what might have made by looking at you know the engines, the large number of engines that Bolton and Watt um, operated in Cornwall and then in in other places, um, and the amount of money that they they should have raked in on these fuel savings. It's difficult because you know people didn't always pay up. Uh, Bolton and Watt in hard economic times sometimes you know um, soft pedaled the the pressure on the payments. So it, it it's hard to figure out exactly. But but my guess uh, was that that Watt probably took in from that business um, by eighteen hundred. Somewhere between 100 and 150,000 pounds. That that was his, that was his share, um, which is a very substantial fortune. Um, and in fact, he he did spend a lot of money um, buying land, um, in particular in the Welsh in the Welsh borders. Um, he became something of a landed gentleman um, in his retirement. This was very common among. The business, the rising business class, you know, they would make their money um, in business and um, then um, invest in land, which was still regarded as, you know, the prime asset. And of course, land was what um, the socially superior um, sectors of the population owned and and lived on. Um, yeah. So, what became a very wealthy man? You, you quote a, a couple times in the book when before Watt became wealthy about how his vision for when he would gain a fortune would that would be that he could basically engage in experimentation and discovery full time. And that gets to an aspect of his life that we haven't really discussed in as much detail, which is the, the scientific innovations, because he was more than just a an engineer and an inventor. He was also a person that was engaged in scientific inquiry, a lot of which was tied to the engineering, but as you explain, it was you know, there was also a lot of theoretical work being undertaken by him at this time. 
Yes, I mean, uh, even from his school days, Watt had a tremendous in, interest in natural philosophy and in science, in chemistry in particular. Um, this was reinforced when he was a mathematical instrument, instrument maker at the University of Glasgow. Some of the professors there um, adopted him. Um, Professor Joseph Black, who was a famous chemist um, and had discovered what we call um, carbon dioxide. Um, uh, Professor Anderson at, at Glasgow University, who um, was more of a um, what we would call a, a physicist, also encouraged um, Watt as well. So he, he learned a great deal um, uh, at the University of Glasgow. But he experimented incessantly uh, himself. He, he always, it seems, had a laboratory. You know, when he lived in fairly humble circumstances in Glasgow, um, he always had some kind of garret workshop um, where he did uh, chemical experiments, among other things. Um, when he gets to Birmingham, um, what moves in a circle who are very strongly interested in natural philosophy. This is a group known as the Lunar Society. Um, Matthew Bolton was a member of the Lunar Society, a very famous chemist um, called Joseph Priestley, um, also became a member of the Lunar Society. Um, Erasmus Darwin, um, Charles Darwin's grandfather, um, was, was a member of the Lunar Society. So what began to move in that, in that circle? Um, and um, that reinforced his his scientific interests. Mm. Uh, as you say, um, a, a lot of his experimentation was done in connection with the steam engine and with other other projects. Um, he was involved in pottery, um, a pottery manufacturer back in Glasgow, and he did experiments on glazes and different kinds of clay and so on. Um, so a lot, a lot of his his experiments were business orientated, but he did tend to experiment far beyond the requirements of any given project. You know, he got interested in the, the subject matter and pursued it really much further than he needed to, just to, just for business purposes. And um, this led him to what became his his only really um, really famous claim to um, a scientific discovery. And this was the, the discovery of the composition of water. Um, water through most of the 18th century was regarded as an element, as the, um, the ancients had regarded water as an element. Um, but um, there were a number of people working on uh, what we would call gases, they called airs. Um, in the 1760s and 1770s, 1780s. Um, and um, what came up, not, he wasn't the only person to do this, but he was one of the people who came up with the idea in the 1780s that water was a compound. Um, essentially, it was a compound of two airs, inflammable air, um, which we call hydrogen, and deflagisticated air, which we call oxygen. It was more complicated because Watt actually believed that heat uh, was a substance and that heat was also a crucial, perhaps the crucial um, substance that was combined with inflammable air and deflagisticated air to produce water. But anyway, in the, in the early 1780s, he's working on these experiments and um, He's encouraged by Joseph Priestley, who he's become very friendly with, um, and by others in his circle to actually write this work up and to submit it to the Royal Society of London, which he does. And he publishes a two-part paper in the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society uh, in 1784. And this, as I say, is, is the only scientific work of Watts that most people um, know anything about or knew anything about. Um, there was a lot of um, a lot of activities, like the duck on the pond. You know, there's there's a great deal of activity going on underneath. Uh, what's actually 
doing a lot more scientific uh, work and experimentation than is apparent from his published work. Most of it, um, uh, you can only find out about it by reading his correspondence, which is what, what I've done in order to find out about um, his extensive philosophical investigations. Well, also at a point in his life where he has this, uh, this growing stature, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about his uh, reputation, his standing in the country, and and what that it, and how he responded to that, and, and and how he dealt with that. Yes. Okay. Um, in a way, um, Watts' stature and his reputation um, had been very important to him and to the business of Bolton and Watt from the beginning. Um, we know that um, in, in the later years of his life, say from about 1800 until his death in 1819, um, Watt becomes a, a celebrated individual. His legend is developed. Um, and, and the legend is in, involves, among other things, the idea that he is a very accomplished um, philosopher. Uh, and, and scientific experimenter. But in fact, he'd been encouraged in, in that view of himself right from the beginning with, uh, with the steam engine business. Um, when you take out a patent, um, I mean, whoever's been involved in, in developing the ideas in the patent, somebody has to be credited with it. And it was always what in the Bolton and Watt business, the patents were always in Watt's name. And as the business grew, Watt was not the only inventor in the business, um, not the only productive person in that sense. Um, but the other, the, the work of the other inventors, collaborators with Bolton and Watt, um, was not recognised um, in the patents. There was a sort of um, a company policy, if you like, that all the philosophical credit went in Watt's direction, um, and the patents were in his. In his name. And there was a good reason for this that, again, right from the beginning, the fact that their steam engines were based on science, um, on extensive experimentation, was one of the main selling points that they used um, in promoting, promoting their engines. You know, these are not the product of sort of empirical tinkering by uh, ordinary mechanics, but they are the product of. Um, high-level scientific experimentation by James Watt, who, of course, is a great philosopher. Um, and so um, Watt had, I suppose, become used um, during this time to being given credit. He was in some ways um, a fairly retiring individual. He was quite, he, he was quite dour. Um, uh, timid in some respects, um, but he'd certainly come to value reputation and uh, saw the importance of reputation to business. In the 1790s, when they were fighting a lot of legal battles over their patents with people who were you know, trying to um, circumvent, circumvent them, again, that was a time when in courts of law, Many people, uh, fellows of the Royal Society who they knew and other prominent people were turning up saying what a great guy Watt was, what a terrific philosopher he was, how his experimental work made um, their engines so much more superior. And of course, these rude mechanics who were pinching his ideas um, could never have come up with them um, themselves. So there's that, that kind of boost to the reputation in the 1790s. And when um, when Watt um, retires, this sort of this process continues. He's showered with honours, honorary honorary uh, Doctor of Laws from the University of Glasgow. Um, he's even offered, towards the end of his life, um, uh, a baronetcy. Um, that is to say, he was offered the opportunity to become Sir James Watt and for his eldest son, who was also called James Watt, to uh, succeed to the baronetcy after him. That's something that he actually turned down. And I think he turned it down because he did have severe reservations about hereditary 
aristocracy from a social and an economic point of view. He did not. He was not an admirer of the economic contribution of hereditary aristocracy to the to the country. Um, yeah, but anyway, so um, Watt's reputation is is very important to him. It becomes he becomes something of a legend in his later years, and um, this is something that um, um, that his son um, begins to help him with, uh, particularly in the, in the 1790s. Um, if people know about um, when you hear the stories of Charles Darwin's life, um, there's a chap called Thomas Huxley often comes up, and Huxley is known as known as Darwin's bulldog. Uh, that is to say, you know, Huxley always went in to uh, into battle for Darwin and his ideas, and to make sure that Darwin got the credit that they both considered he was due. Well, in Watt's case, his son James Watt Jr. was James Watt's bulldog. Um, and I have to say that, that actually was one of the most interesting parts of the book because a lot of biographies they stop usually w- around the you know with the the subject's death, but you proceed in uh, in the final part of your book to trace that the evolution of that image over the next two centuries, how uh, how his son becomes the bulldog, and then how Watt comes to be remembered. It really is a fascinating tale because it ties back to the beginning of your book when you. you uh, are, are talking about the the difference between the the myth of, of James Watt versus the the rea- the reality that we have in in the in the records, and then how that myth emerges not just during Watt's lifetime but afterward as Britain becomes this mighty manufacturing power for which Watt receives a lot of credit, and, or, and as you point out at the very end of the book, in retrospect as well, some blame. Yes, indeed. Um... Yeah, well, the book's called the life and the life and legend um, of James Watt, and um, that might give the impression that you can you can sort of tell the life, and then you can look at the legend subsequently and and separately. Uh, but one of certainly one of my key contentions in the book is that it's a mistake to do that. That the the legend I've already indicated this in a way when I'm talking about the way he's. His reputation was important to the business, um, but his legend was very much um, part of the construction of the life, and and in many ways, getting the life, get, getting to the life, and, and getting what I think is a reasonable characterization of what and his work requires that you get behind the legend. It's very hard to get behind the legend because in the 19th, most of the sources that we use. Um, most of the books that have been written about Watt and the articles that have been written about him um, are, are in fact part of the construction of the legend and the same sort of mythologies get repeated and repeated time after time. Uh, I mean, Watt died in in 1819. He was already a very well-known figure. Um but already in the 1820s, by 1824, there's a public meeting, um, which is, which has the goal of raising funds to produce a statue, which will be placed in Westminster Abbey, to commemorate what. So very very rapidly, people are you know putting what on a par with scientists like Newton, you know who Isaac Newton, who had a statue in in Westminster Abbey. And I think this is this is partly has to do with the rise of the commercial and business class um, in um, British society. Of course, after the the French Wars and uh, the famous victory of Wellington at um, at Waterloo, um, military heroes are very very important um, in Britain at that time, and statues are going up all over the place to military heroes. Um, but the business classes. Um, are to some extent suspicious of that activity. You know, they they think, well, look, the prosperity of this country certainly depends to some extent on, you know, its military defence and so on, Um, but it also depends on industry um, and on technology, on on the people who 
enable industry to grow and develop and make us more and more money. So we need other sorts of heroes apart from military heroes. And I think this was this was a good deal of the impetus behind the idea of commemorating Watts' achievements um, by doing things like putting statues all over the place. By, by the end of the 19th century, there were numerous statues um, around the British Isles, you know, ranging from um, Oxford University to Greenock to Leeds to Manchester, London, Glasgow, Edinburgh. They were and Westminster Abbey, they were all over the place. Um, so there's, uh, the reputation gets tied up with, in, in many ways, the, the British sense of, you know, their economic story, the, the story of the island. Um, and um, Britain, of course, undergoes uh, an industrial revolution. In fact, Watts' um, activities are often seen as helping to precipitate that industrial revolution. And, and Britain becomes enormously powerful economically. And um, the stories that people tell about why that happened, how it happened, um, come to include uh, quite prominently the story of, of James Watt. In the 20th century, in some ways, he becomes somewhat less famous, um, or less specifically famous. He's still famous as a um, as an inventor, the stories about him, you know, fiddling with a tea kettle um, when he's a child, which supposedly um, prefigured his mature accomplishments, those stories become um, widespread. He, he becomes a more general symbol of, of the inventor um, in the 20th century. But, of course, steam power has its competition, uh, first from electricity and then from from nuclear energy, so and there are heroes of those sources of energy too. So, so what as a figure perhaps um, begins to decline in the 20th century? I know. I obviously um, talk to people um, about my work occasionally at, at dinner parties and so on, and it's surprising how many people think that James Watt invented the what the the light bulb. Um, <laughs> They think that they think that because um, because of course he um, the unit of energy uh, the watt was named after him um, in the late nineteenth century and um, so that's where most people come across um, come across the term you know they, the the light goes out in the shed and they put a new one in and they say oh well this is a yeah this is a seventy five watt bulb I know that's a little old fashioned now or eleven lumens or whatever it is, but, um, but um, yeah, so uh, what's uh, the, the true stories about what's, uh, what's life have um, become a little uh, less prominent um, in recent decades. And of course, um, there are other things that have, that have happened to his reputation that, 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 that they've always been um, detractors, actually. Um, people who thought that Watt wasn't such a great guy. And they go back to his competitors in the steam engine business in the late 18th century. There is, in fact, uh, a case to be made that, you know, Watt's um, views, his influence, so far as steam was concerned, were not always positive. Um, all Watt's steam engines were low-pressure engines. That is, they, they operated at rather low steam pressures. Um, and the uh, steam technologies of the 19th century depended very strongly on high-pressure steam, and most obviously the railways, um, but also um, mature steamship technology relied on very high-pressure engines. And um, as, as high-pressure steam began to be suggested in the very late 18th century, what was strongly opposed? I mean, he was opposed partly for business reasons. <laughs> so this is not what we do. This is not what we do. You know, we want to sell our low pressure engines, so we have to oppose high pressure steam. Yeah, I, um, but he also. I was, I was reading that section. I was, I was thinking about the current dangerous. wars. Sorry, I was, I was reading that section. I was thinking about the current wars that 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 would follow between uh, Edison and Westinghouse. You know, you have one person who's very wedded to the technology that he developed and how he yeah. is very resistant to the option of the new technology, which ends up uh, becoming the norm after after he's gone. Well, that's exactly right. That's exactly right, and certainly something 
similar went on between low pressure and high pressure steam. But of course, then the irony is that Watt's reputation becomes such in the 19th century that people tend to credit him with absolutely everything that happens in steam in the 19th century. So he gets credit. You know, people often, people who, well, even now, people who don't say that Watt invented the, the, the light bulb um, might well say that he invented the steam locomotive. Um, yeah, because the the tendency was to give Watt credit for everything that followed um, in uh, in terms of steam power and steam traction. Yeah, but he yeah, if, if it had been up to Watt, there would have been no railways. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've taken a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Yes, well, I, I must confess, in, in, in recent months, I've been taking a little bit of a break. Um, the, this project did take um, quite a lot out of me. Um, but I am beginning to um, revive some projects that I'd thought of before, thought about before. One concerns the nature of discovery and invention. Uh, one, of the, one of the previous books I, I wrote that, in, that featured James Watt considerably was called Discovering Water. And I mentioned that he was a um, you know he was a candidate discovery for the compound nature of water. There was actually a big controversy in the 19th century about who was the real discoverer. Was it Watt or was it um, Antoine Lavoisier, the great French chemist, or was it in fact a, an English aristocrat uh, called Henry Cavendish? So I wrote this book called Discovering Water, which looked at that controversy. And I'm thinking now of writing a much more general book about the nature of discovery uh, and the nature of invention. They're usually thought of as psychological things, you know, so, literally the light bulb going off in somebody's head. You know, that's that's how discoveries happen. Um, but there is a wider sense in which um, discoveries and inventions are both sort of the products of social processes that people um, get credited with discoveries and inventions. And how does that come about? You know, it's not there might be many people with light bulbs going off in their heads, but why do some of them get credited with the invention and not others? So that's one of my one of my thoughts. And, a, and a, another project I'm beginning to work on sort of comes out of this in a way. Two of the two obscure characters who worked for Bolton and Watt erecting engines in the 1770s, um, who were sympathetic with the American Revolution. Um, and ended up um, leaving for the United States and taking their steam um, engine knowledge with them, and in fact also taking a number of um, drawings and plans from Bolton and Watt um, to the American colonies. So that's a story of um, industrial espionage that um, I think will keep me amused for the next few years. They both sound like fascinating projects. I look forward to reading them. Okay. Well, David, well, give, give me some incentive to keep trying to write them then. <laughs> well, David Miller, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you very much, Mark. You too. <laughs>